title of my sermon today is The Necessity of a Biblical Worldview. Sounds like a worldly type of topic, if you will. But let me tell you how the Holy Spirit works. And actually, as in my case, about eight weeks ago, no less than six weeks ago, he began really working in my mind about this sermon at that time. And I had no idea it was going to be a sermon. First of all, I was just thinking constantly about what is my biblical worldview. What's my worldview? How do I see the world? How do I look at it? What's the filter that I use? What are the uh, presuppositions or the assumptions that I make that uh, guide in my thinking the decisions I make and the way that I view the world? Every single one of us, whether we want to or not, has a worldview. Nothing new there. Every one of you have a worldview. You might have gained it from the culture of our times. You might have gained it right straight out of the Word of God. You might have assimilated some of it from a variety of other things through Sunday school or small groups or private Bible study. You might be influenced somewhat by the culture around you and some of the other worldviews that are out there that sound on the surface rather enticing. But in actuality, they're not. So I was thinking about this about six to eight weeks ago. What is my biblical worldview? And later on this week, around Wednesday in particular, I kept thinking, you know, there's one hymn that just comes to my mind, and that my faith has found a resting place. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And I kept thinking, that's the hymn that we need to sing this morning. So when I first got here at the 8 o'clock service, I'd forgotten my hymnal, and Russ has been kind enough, actually over a year ago, to prepare the list of hymns that we'll sing for the early morning, for this service in particular, and then we started singing them as the first hymn for the first service. And I was thinking, now, my faith has found a resting place is appropriate for us to be singing as it relates to this. And then this morning I told Ron, I said, let's sing that one for sure. And then we didn't have my copy of what Russ had prepared. I had not looked at it. I didn't know what it was. And lo and behold, it was hymn number 405, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And God had been dealing with me in my heart about that hymn all week long, practically. And that's the one that he had predestined, according to his will, for us to sing this morning. How appropriate it was that we sing that hymn. And so I'm convinced that God had his mind set up well before he ever <laughs> gave me the opportunity to preach. And Paul ever asked me to do that, which was last week. So I praise God that he is an all-wise and all-knowing, almighty God. Let's look at verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Simply said, you can't get any quicker or, or more direct than this. As Peter is addressing the church, and he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Let's just say that one more time. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Wow, what a statement, what an admonition, 
What an instruction for us as Christians that Paul was asking. By the way, he wasn't writing this to elders and deacons. He was writing it to them, but he was writing it to every other believer. Everyone. And by the way, he didn't say, make a defense. Be ready to make a defense to selected individuals. He didn't say, be able to make a a defense to the intellectuals. Or he didn't say, be able or be ready to make a defense to any specific one, but he said to everyone. That's who he expects us to make a defense to. Let's, let's define what a worldview is. And if you have a copy of the study guide, you'll have a copy that I wrote down from a book that I borrowed from Rowena called Understanding the Times. And it is about the religious worldviews of our day and the search for truth by a fellow by the name of David Noble. And here's how he defines a worldview. The term worldview refers to any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relations to God and the world. Specifically, A worldview should contain a particular perspective regarding each of the following ten disciplines. Theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, and history. That's pretty comprehensive. Some people would automatically think, well, Now, if it involves all of that, certainly there's no such thing as a biblical worldview that encompasses all of that. But I tell you right now, you'd be absolutely wrong, because the biblical worldview encompasses all of that. There are four questions that any and all worldviews, in essence, answer. And we have said them in outline this morning, and I got these four questions, by the way, from one of the greatest Christian apologists I know of, a fellow by the name of Ravi Zacharias who God has extraordinarily gifted to proclaim the gospel of truth with power and authority. A man who has spent his life reading and comprehending, I might add, all of the philosophies, the vain philosophies of mankind. But even more importantly, he has spent his life in the Word. He is a well-educated, well-read man, extraordinarily so. He says there are four things that any worldview will ask of you. Number one, where did I come from? Number two, what is the meaning of my life? Number three, how can I tell right from wrong? And number four, what happens to me when I die? Four very astounding and earth-shaking questions. That is the, that's the key. That's going to be contained in any worldview. Now, if you are familiar with the word, and I trust that you are, you'll know right off the bat that the Bible answers all four of these questions very specifically and thoroughly. There's no question about that. When it comes to some of the humanistic philosophies that's out there, especially secular humanism or the Marxist-Leninist philosophy, or many others, there's just worldviews by the galore. There's a New Age worldview that really makes you feel good from a humanistic standpoint. But the fact is, is that when you, when you look at them, nearly all of them address these same things, but they don't come up with very good answers. 
Where did I come from? Was I created by an omnipotent, almighty God? An all-wise, all-knowing God? Or did I evolve? Did I happen by accident that the human race, actually a couple of specks of bacteria came together, interacted, and, and created the first living cell? And I, and I, you know, as you, the more I read about evolution, which is rightly called the theory of evolution, the more I read about it, the more I recognize that it takes far more faith to believe in what they will have to tell you than it ever will in the creationist God. It is just astounding when you stop to think about it. And yet, that's taught not as a theory, but if you really get down to it, it's taught as a fact. You know, Clarence Darrell made the defense at the Scopes Monkey Trial saying that it would be, it's absolutely unforgivable that only one worldview with respect to creation would be presented. Today, in our society, to get the creationist or the intelligent design worldview presented in public schools is an impossibility. And it is fought at every turn by all sorts of organizations, obviously foremost among them the ACLU, which is basically an organization that has its roots in Marxist-Leninism. That's where it really began. Yet, the humanist, sec- the secular humanist worldview says evolution is the way we got here. And that is a pathetic un- understanding, an excuse for how we got here. And to think of, if that's how we got here, what are we headed for? So when you look at the humanistic and the Marxist-Leninist worldviews that are the two prevailing worldviews in our society today, you don't have a lot of reason to have an account, to give an account for the hope that's in you, because there's not going to be a lot of hope, let me tell you. You know, when we were talking between the services, and I can remember the first time I ever got exposed to uh, the the millennial theories about uh, when Jesus was going to come and when he was going to set up his kingdom. And I do remember this. Being raised a Southern Baptist at that particular time, I was prone, because most Southern Baptist pastors were prone, to be an amillennial. So everything was kind of symbolic. And the, the millennium was not something that was looked upon as that was going to actually happen in the way that it was described. We are, as Christian Missionary Alliances, subscribed essentially to the premillennial viewpoint. But there was another viewpoint one time that was very prevalent, especially in the 19th century. It was the post-millennial viewpoint. And what it said is basically that man was getting to the point where he was becoming educated enough and enlightened enough and good enough where eventually he would reach such a progressive state of improvement and righteousness that eventually what would happen is that when he reached that state, Christ would come and set up his kingdom. So that's why they call it post-millennial. It would happen after man had reached this stage of great improvement and progression. Well, what really destroyed that point of view very quickly was something called World War I. And if that wasn't good enough, World War II really did it in. You'll have a hard time finding any post-millennials today. They're just almost none to be found, because that's a 19th century thing that really thought for a while, man's making such great progress and improvements in his governing of himself, 
that eventually he will bring about such a society that will become so inclined toward righteousness and goodness that Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom. Well, we know that that's not the case. And as a matter of fact, what we've been studying in Romans makes it clear. There are none righteous, no, not one. None whatsoever. So the fact is, is that what is held out is by secular humanism as this great asp of this great future for mankind. As you read some of the writings of the humanist, you find out that they're becoming readily more pessimistic as time goes by. Why? Because they don't see that kind of improvement in mankind. As a matter of fact, every time they think that man makes some progress, he seems to take about two steps backwards. So the fact is, what is then that which is a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview? The fact is, if you want to get the foundation for it, there's a great little brochure out here in the foyer. It's called, We Believe. gives you the doctrine of faith, the statement of the doctrine of faith of the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is thoroughly rooted and grounded in the word of truth. And from that, you would be able to get a good understanding of what the Christian or biblical worldview would be. But it starts with God as our creator. Why am I here? Because God created me. And he's so infinite, and he is so all-wise that even before the foundations of this world were laid, he knew that you and I would be. He knew us. And he knew that we would need a Savior. And he provided that Savior for us. And that Savior was Jesus Christ, who came on earth, and lived a perfect and pure and sinless life, and was the sacrifice for our sins, who suffered and bled and died at Calvary, who was then killed at that time, and who was buried, and then three days later arose victorious forevermore over, the, over death. And now he sits at the right hand of God in glory. Now, that's a biblical worldview. And that's only just part of a biblical worldview. Because it goes on and on and tells basically all the things that we need to know, knowing that there is an absolute truth. That God has given us those laws that we need to govern us. And that's why we still need the Ten Commandments today. They're as relevant now as they were when Moses gave them to the children of Israel. So, the biblical worldview is going to be found here. And it starts with understanding that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. It tells us that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So are you prepared today to give an account for the hope that is in you? Are you ready to make a defense to everyone who would ask you about that hope that is within you? Do you have a biblical worldview? Are you looking at the world through the scriptures of God, through the revealed truth of God, or are you looking at the world from another perspective? Let me just basically talk about it those other perspectives for a moment, because what is it that caused Christians to have less than a biblical worldview? 
I think the first thought is that we have to understand that we sometimes, we are, not some, we are living in a society all the time, in which we are bombarded by the message that is anything but true. We don't even realize it at times, how pervasive and how insidious it really is. The fact of the matter is, the real religion of this society, we don't have a separation of church and state. I mean, we do, but the fact is, is that we have a religion in our society today. It's called secular humanism, and it's preached at every turn. You cannot avoid it. You see it in television, you see it on the news, you see it in the newspapers, you see it in all sorts of periodicals you read. It really lifts up man and says, man doesn't really need God. Man is capable of ruling himself. He doesn't need a creator. He doesn't need an all-wise God. He is capable of doing this himself. And after all, that's what he was created to do. It sounds enticing and wonderful until you begin to explore and understand what the end result really is. That most of the time, what really pe- why people are really saying, I want, uh, I, you know, I want a postmodern kind of viewpoint. And postmodernism has really been something that is astounding. To the introduction to the study guide this morning, it was interesting that George Barna, who does such magnificent research, had discovered, and he published this in his latest book called Revolution, Vibrant, Finding Vibrant Faith Beyond the Walls of the Sanctuary. He said that less than 10%, like 9%, of all Christians classify themselves as born-again believers have a biblical worldview. And he goes on to define what that would, would entail, looking on the scriptures of the divinely inspired word of God. Understanding that Christ came to save the ungodly. Understanding these basic things. Yet, understanding also this one thing, that as a consequence of what Christ has done for us, we ought to be willing to give testimony of what he has done for us to any who would ask. But the fact is, is that 9% of Christians, only 9% have a biblical worldview. Now, if that's not astounding enough, He came up with another thought. Later on in the book, he says, only 51% of Protestant ministers have a biblical worldview. So is it any question why only 9%, less than 1 out of 10, have a biblical worldview when only about 5 out of 10 have pastors, that is, spiritual leaders, have a biblical worldview? And we are finding ourselves really assaulted by this culture of unbelief in which we live, which says the Bible is a collection of fairy tales. It's fables. It's allegorical. It's nothing here that really means anything specifically. I mean, it's kind of just representative of some philosophy of life, but it's not true. And the fact is, is that a lot of Christians unknowingly have bought into that. And they want to say to themselves, well, you know, I don't like to be perceived as less than intelligent. I don't want to be perceived as some bigoted fundamentalist who believes in these fables and fairy tales. So what Christians have done, in essence, they've adopted the philosophy, the worldview of secular humanism. 
And as I said, secular humanism is everywhere. But you know what? It's amazing. One other thing that's prevalent in our society today is this Marxist-Leninist philosophy. And you think to yourself, well, wait, wait a minute. They lost the Cold War. Communism has fallen. It's been gone for almost two decades. How could it be that Marxist-Leninist philosophy could ever find a place in our day and age? This is the fact. It's alive and well in our universities. It's being taught every day in every way by every kind of persuasion. You can see it, and, and all you have to do is just open up your ears, open up your eyes, and listen and look and understand what's going on today. You would think that the communists had been victorious. You would think that communism was the end-all to be-all, that it was just absolutely going to be the, the greatest way in which we could live. But it wasn't, and it isn't, and it never will be. It is false, it is based upon a lie that begins with atheism, because the very foundation, both of secular humanism and Leninist Marxist philosophy, is basically atheism. They don't believe in God. God has no place whatsoever in their worldview. It's all about man and the system of government that man might eventually be able to evolve to. That's going to be such glorious things. But it hasn't worked out that way after this great experiment took place in a place called the Soviet Union. So what else is causing Christians to adopt to less than a biblical worldview? I call it not only uh, the culture of unbelief, there is this lure of intellectualism, of not wanting to appear to be ignorant, not wanting to appear to be uneducated, not wanting to appear to be simple-minded. So therefore, we kind of agree with some of this secular humanist philosophy and worldview, and we adapt it and we kind of tidy it up in a nice package, and we call it part of the way that we think. And sometimes we don't even know that we've done this, but we've done it nonetheless. So I challenge you this morning to think through thoroughly your worldview. Is it based, rooted, and grounded in the Word of God? Or is there a tint of secular humanism here, or Marxist-Leninist philosophy that has crept into our thinking? That's one thing that we need to do. And I think overall, the one thing I find the most, the biggest reason of all for unbelief, among Christians, is the fact that there's a profound ignorance of the Word of God. That seems to be the most incredible thing of all. We claim to be believers in God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And yet, we don't know the Word of God. You know, one of the things we're trying to do in this church, and it is the church's responsibility to help people, to encourage them in the Word, to give them instructions, and basically to do this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know, in October, the middle of October, we're going to do Equip 101 for the third time. It deals with church membership, and those of you who have not been through it yet, even though you've been members of the church for 20-some-odd years or even longer, I would encourage to go through Equip 101 and find out clearly and distinctly what we believe as a Christian Missionary Alliance and the unique attributes of this particular church that God has established in McHenry, Illinois. 
Also, concurrently with that, we're going to be doing Equip 201. And I think it's appropriately named, because the purpose of these seminars we're doing is to get you a jump start in the Word, to help you be more familiar with the Word and to understand the disciplines of the Christian life that you need in order to be fruitful, to bear fruit for Jesus Christ, and to bring glory to his name. To be ignorant of the scriptures is utterly inexcusable. It is inexcusable. And, when, and that's another aspect of George Barnett's research. If you think the things I've quoted from him are already uh, pretty interesting and astounding, guess again, there's a lot more. You'd be surprised what he's found out that so-called believers or Christians believe and what they think. We haven't got time to go in up to this morning, but I just encourage you to get into the Word and understand that we have no excuse. And matter of fact, that's what Peter is saying in this verse of Scripture in chapter 3, verse 15. Be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. Be ready to give an account. Lastly, I think that we need to understand this. The reason that we need a biblical worldview, one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons is this. We need to face the reality that we are at war. We're at war. We have an enemy who has been successful in blinding the eyes of millions of people. We need to be able to speak the word filled with the Holy Spirit in truth, in love, and bear witness to this world of what Jesus is all about. Jesus has not sent special messengers from heaven. He has charged you and I with the responsibilities as members of the church to bear witness of his truth. That is why Peter says, be ready to make a defense to everyone who ask you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Are you ready to do that? But the fact is, is that sometimes we're not. You know what? There's one other aspect I'd like to just add to this. And that's a phrase that I, I, I've kind of thought up myself, and I realize how true it is. And that is, belief begats behavior. Belief begats behavior. Belief gives birth to how we think and how we act. What we believe, the core values of our belief system, are what makes us able to make wise decisions in accordance with the will of God that bring glory to the name of Jesus. That's what enables us. We need to know what we believe. That's why all scriptures, divinely inspired, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. That's why we need it. Now, why do we need a biblical worldview? As you go back to, uh, to 1 Peter three fifteen, it says this, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You know what? You and I have a mind. God has uniquely created us among all his creation with a heart, if we believe in Jesus Christ, as the Holy Spirit comes and gives us new life everlasting, with a mind that can be renewed in Christ Jesus and become like the mind of Christ, 
He has given us, indeed, a soul, encompassing our mind, our will, our emotions. He has given us the strength that we need, the well-being of our bodies in order to obey him and live the way he has expected and wants us to live, a way that brings victory and glory to the name of Jesus. Now, so God has given us a mind. He expects us to use it. We'd like to think that maybe he's talking to some specialists, people who have been gifted as evangelists, or better yet, people who have been gifted as apologists. Now, if I can stand here and I'll tell you, preach this sermon, and I, and, I, and I praise God for the opportunity to do it. I thank God for this chance. But if I can even talk about this subject, as ignorant as I am, in comparison to someone like a Ravi Zacharias, who God has gifted extraordinarily, who's able to explain the scriptures, and who understands all these vain arguments of man, and who can refute them. God, if, if God can do that with me, he can enable you to give an account for the hope that's in you. And what, think about what that means, to give an account for the hope. What is it? Faith is the essence of that for which we hope, the proof of the reality of things not seen. So therefore, this means that we're able, because of God, what he's done, we have hope that he's able to do what he says. He can save us. He's given us life eternal. He's promised us an eternity with him. We can believe God. He's trustworthy. And therefore, we are enabled, if we just think, if we just use our minds to think through this process and to give God the glory by speaking the word of truth and love. There's nothing extraordinary about that. You don't need to be a great debater. You don't need to be an orator. You don't need to be someone who's vastly articulate. You just need to have faith and to speak about the hope that is within you. Now, one other thing. He's asked us to do it in a very specific way. If you look at the very end of that, it says, with gentleness and reverence. With gentleness and reverence. He doesn't ask us to be arrogant about it. He doesn't ask us to be intellectually superior so that we can argue someone down on a point or that we can make an atheist look like the fool that they might be but that we might have hope in what God can do and that we can speak the word of truth and love in such a way, hoping that God's Holy Spirit will make that person come spiritually alive, that will give them the recognition to know the truth. We don't need to be able to persuade someone in the way that man usually thinks. That's why we're reluctant sometimes in our evangelistic zeal, because what we're really trying to do, what we really are saying in essence by not doing it, is that we aren't good enough to win an argument, so therefore we just won't say anything at all. God expects us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We have all sorts of hope in us. Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. Why couldn't we make a defense to anyone who asks us to give an account for that hope that is within us? So what do we need? in order to have a biblical view. In the very beginning of this verse, there's the answer. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ. 
If, you, if that's not sufficient, there's some other verses of Scripture I'll throw out to you. And when you start to think about the whole of Scripture, you'll, the many more will come to pass. But it says this, and also in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Keep seeking the things that are above. Set your mind on the things uh, that are above. Not on the things of this world, but on the things that are above. Jesus said at the culmination of the great be- uh, Sermon on the Mount, as he, as he gave us the Beatitudes, which, by the way, you talk about a worldview. What an incredible worldview Jesus revealed right then and there on that Sermon on the Mount. It is the way we ought to live. How now shall we live, if you will? So Jesus told us, and therefore he said this, as he summed it up, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first God's kingdom. We need to seek God. We need to seek the things that are not of this earth, but the things that are above. That's what we need to be doing. Also, in Colossians, it says in verse 16 of the third chapter, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. If we said that all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, then let that word richly dwell within you. And God can do incredible things. If you'll cherish his word in your heart, if you'll lock it into your heart, and you're able to meditate upon that which is lovely and good and pure, and that which is of good repute, which Paul talked about in, in his letter, it, then you'll know what is a Christian worldview. God's Holy Spirit will be able to bear witness to you that enable you to formulate that in your heart and to be able to express it in your mind with words spoken in love. So, one other thing as we close. Let's look at 1 Corinthians, just for a second Corinthians, if you will. Second Corinthians, I'm going to bring you to, you know, to the scripture because I want you to understand. As I said before, the enemy that we're fighting here, and whether we like it or not, by the way, we're at war. And that spiritual enemy is trying to deceive the minds of millions and millions of people and has succeeded. And it is our role, as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, as we speak the word of truth and love, to help refute the message of the enemy. Looking at verse 3 in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Have you taken every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Have you submitted yourself to him? Tells us in Romans that Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God expects you to have a renewed mind, 
to look at the worldview that he has given us according to the word of truth in his scripture and to be able to give an account of the hope that is within us. Are you prepared to do just that thing? You know what you have? God's created us with the ability to make a choice whether or not we will do what he's instructed us to do. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if you love Jesus, if you believe that the word of God is divinely inspired, if you believe that it is eternal and it is living and dynamic and sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce to the very depths of our heart, then you can believe that God will equip you to make and give a reason for the, for the hope that is within you. Christ in us, it says, the hope of glory. Think of that. Christ in you and me. Not because we've earned it or ever will, but because of his grace, he's made it available to us that indwelling us is the spirit of the living God. Accept it this morning, I pray. And commit to yourself to do what God has commanded you to do. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome and wonderful and marvelous God. You have created us. You know us. You know everything about us. There's nothing hidden from you. You are the God that is all-wise and all-knowing. And we thank you, Father, that you know us even better than we know ourselves. We thank you that you have made available to us grace and mercy and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for him. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit, who you have sent to bear witness with our spirit that we are your children. I pray, Father, that by his presence and power within us, as you move us and renew us in our minds and our hearts, that you would enable us to speak the word of truth and love, that you would enable us, God, to bear witness, to give testimony, to give an account of the hope that is within us. You have done so much for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for that salvation so wonderful. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the word of truth, that you have enabled us to understand it by the witness of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us. You are the living God. You are the Most High God. You are the Creator of heaven and earth. We thank you, Father, for who you are for your great mercy toward us. We thank you for your salvation for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.